Welcome to This Is Fine, episode 1.10, Fox Populi. Hi, I'm really happy to be here today with my uh, good friend, reporter and critic at large, Sam Thielman, another uh, bearded weirdo. And uh, I'll let him uh, do about 10 seconds on himself as we uh, manage to hold down the fort without Jerry. Uh, hello, hello. I am a, I am indeed a bearded weirdo. I have uh, reported for two years on media and uh, cable infrastructure uh, and a number of other very strange, very niche topics for The Guardian US, primarily uh, a couple of other publications in there. Yeah, just happy to be here. Well, thanks, Sam. And I, I thought Sam was a particularly good host for today's show because we're going to do industrial policy when Jerry returns. But now I actually wanted to talk about two aspects of the business of media. We talked a lot about media in episode 1.4, but I think today we want to talk about something that um, I didn't know and our listeners may not know, which is sort of Fox's place in the business ecosystem and maybe one of the reasons it's so hard actually to replicate. So, I mean, I I think, Sam, you'd said you really have to go back to the beginning when Fox started and and sort of look at the type of conservative media ecosystem it came out of uh, and and the niche that it filled. So so what is that? Sort of unroll that for us. Well, so there's a few there are a couple of different strands of conservatism. And I think one of the reasons it's harder. Rick Perlstein made a valiant attempt in, I guess, The New York Times magazine a week or two ago to, to, to come up with a unified theory of conservatism. But there basically isn't one because there's no philosophical, you know, apparatus that can contains both pro-abortion libertarians and Bible-banging anti-Semitic Massachusetts Catholics. Like, there's, that's those are two coalitions that that's have... such a nice <laughs> description of William F. Buckley. <laughs> I was thinking of Sean Spicer, but they're very similar people. Um, it just There's just a wealth disparity there, which is actually, I think, the most important part of this. Um, there There is the, the, the Buckley origins, right? Like, Buckley started the National Review because of Brown v. Board. That gets lost because people quote his line about, oh, you know, I'm here to stand athwart history or whatever, shouting stop. But he was he was shouting stop at Brown v. Board. Like that is that is specifically the thing that the National Review came out of. It was founded a year after that. And he, you know, went went forward with that. And then his his sort of his really horrific racist essays um, in particular, I believe it's called Why the South Must Prevail or Impossible mm-hmm. to Find Now. You have to look them up as PDFs on academic websites because they're no longer on the National Review website because they're justifiably embarrassed about them. But even then, Buckley was writing for wealthy racists. He was not writing for truck drivers. Um, Truck drivers were listening to talk radio, and talk radio is really the genesis of Fox News. Fox is talk radio on TV. And it's it's a really astonishingly astute business model. Um, you have people who can sit there and entertain themselves, each other, and you for as long as they need to because these guys, if they're successful in talk radio, are able to just yak nonstop for four hours, as I am doing now. Um, but I get tired after about ten minutes and I start rambling about you know. So I mean that's a this is a good point. Rush Limbaugh does he predate Fox? Who, these mm-hmm. sort of stars of drive time radio yeah. was this sort of a niche that. Um, you know, the Murdoch people saw and were like, well, we should put this on television? Or how, how does that how does that work? Well, a lot of it just comes out of the particular peculiar genius of Roger Ailes, who is an incredible sort of TV dynamo. Uh, somebody who's And Jabba from, the Hutt look-alike. And Jabba the Hutt look-alike, exactly. I mean, really, the, the image of Jabba with, like, Leia in lingerie she'd rather not be wearing and chains around her neck is such a perfect emblem of 
Roger Ailes' relationship to the entire female community. It's actually at Fox. the cover of the 2004 Fox annual report. <laughs> yeah, the annual report. Right. Yeah, exactly. Soaring profits, imprisoned workforce. No, Fox is his brainchild, and one of the reasons he's able to make it work is that the level of investment uh, in, in news gathering Fox has to sustain is much, 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 much lower than say CNN. Uh, this is actually the problem with news media in general, which is that if I um, file a story that gets my newspaper sued, costs me thirty thousand dollars, costs me like my reporting apparatus thirty thousand dollars just before the lawsuit even, and then kind of drags on for a couple of years before we eventually win the suit because what we reported is true. I put that at the top of my CV, <laughs> like in any other industry. If you really like dragged your employer through court, you would re- you would probably get fired. You'd probably have to go work someplace else. But unfortunately, because of the nature of news gathering, like doing these incredibly high risk, low reward things uh, is is like the people just take it on faith that that's the best thing to do with Fox. They don't do that. They just have people who go on the air, say legally and morally indefensible things for 45 minutes to an hour and um, then try and sell ads to whoever wants an adjacency with those things. And this was something that actually really surprised me when you first told me, because like the drive time uh, talk radio model, they don't have as large of a reporting presence as the mm-hmm. other television news no, stations. Not at all. And I hadn't realized that at all. I, I figured, you know, Fox was unethical and terrible, but but sort of like CNN, I just figured, oh, they have they must have international desks, they must yeah. have reporters everywhere. And you were saying that's just not true. Well, they may do they may have international they they probably have international correspondence, but their office their news gathering offices are like two crummy floors in the news corp building. Um, CNN has this, you know, giant tower at Columbus Circle. They have huge offices in Atlanta, they have bureaus all over the world. CNN's television product is largely an indefensible, immoral, insane thing because they just give airtime to cranks. But that is not because that's what they set out to do. It's because Fox started eating their lunch in the ratings. I mean, the, the, fundamentally, the 24-hour the news network business model is flawed. You have to either frighten people all the time, the way CNN started out trying to do, and there's diminishing returns on that because people don't want to stay frightened. But they, they don't mind to stay angry, as Fox learned. Uh, they, they like to be told that their problems are the fault of someone else. Um, they like to have their worst instincts catered to, and they like to see pretty women in short skirts, which is n- not merely like an incidental effect. There, there are rules govern, governing how long your skirt can't be and uh, how you have to sit behind, you know, clear desks at Fox. So besides the um, insane climate of sexual harassment right. and paying uh, the anchors far more than any journalistic apparatus, right. why have liberals not been able to copy this? I, I mean, I know MSNBC's ratings have been a little better since the election, but generally there's been both a failure of, of liberals to copy the original drive time radio model. Right. And also, I think, to challenge Fox, right? That- well, I, I think you, you get into some tough distinctions here because I don't think a lot of the people who love, for example, the new breed of guys like Alex Jones would necessarily, would necessarily describe themselves as conservative. But you do you do hit a reasonability gap, right? Like you, you, you can't sell people with a serious investment in understanding all sides of an issue, the Fox model, because it's necessarily reductive. But you're just saying the <clears throat> queen is a reptilian Jew is not necessarily a conservative Yeah, exactly. Position. No, it's true. Right. That's, uh, yeah. I assume our <laughs> listeners may not be familiar with this, but if you actually go to YouTube and look for clips of reptilians, you'll enter a 
fascinating subworld of the quasi conservative. But you know, Alex Jones is a is a big Trump supporter. Uh, uh, paranoia, which is kind of fascinating, actually. I mean, I think it goes beyond the sort of normal and objectionable anti-Semitism of the alt-right into its own sort of fun science fiction uh, fantasy conspiracy. Well, and I think I was saying to you a, a few days ago that, that that's what I find just so desperately sad about the evolution of Alex Jones is I fucking love bat boy shit. Like, I, the Weekly World News is a publication with real value to the world. Right. Like, the, the, a sort of, like, down-market version of Buckley-esque racism. I don't really want that. You can get that any number of places. I, I can't hear about how, like, Elvis met aliens at the diner down my street last night, and I would really prefer to. <laughs> right, right. It, it's, a, it's a big shame that, that Art Bell didn't become more popular yeah. as opposed to Alex Jones. <laughs> so, I mean, to, to go back to, to the Fox um, model, reproducibility problems abound, obviously, if one of the things you have to do is continue to lie in a certain yeah. way. I think liberals are, are bad at that. But Well, but journalists I, are supposed to be bad at that. I and mean, that's one of the things that, I'm sorry to cut you off, no, but that's no, one no, of the no, things please. that really infuriates me about the Fox model is that you have a few of these people who are generally supposed to be like avatars of some, some kind of like reporterly virtue who get hired on at Fox and then they just, they just have to take their gigantic paycheck, mouth whatever they're told to by, I guess, Bill Shine now that, um, now that old Roger is gone and, um, and, and just sort of sacrifice all of that they, all that they've, um, supposedly spent their careers trying to accrue in terms of credibility. It, it's really despicable. It, it's right. That, that's actually happened? not a thing that's limited to Fox. Like that is something you do see in the liberal media. I don't know why Fareed Zakaria still has a job, right? Like the, there's, there's a number of people who are regularly get caught committing the cardinal sins of their craft. And then it just doesn't matter because they belong to some sort of stratum where they're, Oh, well he's a pundit. It doesn't matter if he steals other people's ideas. Right. Plagiarism's fine. Yeah. Um, protect and, and sources when they lie, or even lying is fine. Yeah. I mean, and this is true of mainstream institutions, right? This is a mm-hmm. one of the reasons we have, although the current public editor of the Times is terrible, is because the Times had repeated sort of issues with this. I mean, yeah. and it's actually sort of a shame that Jason Blair, who made up a bunch of stuff, is I think more of a uh, journalistic sinner in some ways than Judith Miller, yeah. who, who really should have been run out of a rail. But you're talking about at Fox people like Juan Williams, right? So yeah. you're not so people like Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram. Again, for listeners who don't watch Fox, these these people are famous. Um, the <laughs> these people are wildly famous, actually. <laughs> so those those people never came in with journalistic chops. They've always mm-hmm. sort of been the the radio host model of I'm re-reporting other people's outrage. Right. But Awan Williams was a reporter at, at NPR for many right. years and a well-respected one, right? right? And so. What does happen? Is that all the editorial well, Chris line? Wallace. I mean, Chris, yeah. Sure, Chris yeah. Wallace is another good example. Brit Hume, yeah. Uh, what what happens to those yeah, people when they come? What on happens board? is it just is it just the editorial dictates of that role are so powerful? Yeah, I mean, or? it's really it's a place where the whole where not just the um, sort of direction, but the actual stories and how they're often they're going to be repeated is dictated from the top down. Like, in, when we have a nine a.m. edit meeting, it's go report this story, go report that story, and then come back with your copy before deadline. But um, th- this is very much about okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna drum into people this is this specific talking point throughout the day say this thing 10 times say that, well the, i don't know if it's necessarily block. down to a or to a particular count but it may be i mean ailes is somebody who really understands television he was winning emmys for local television programs that he um ran in ohio long before he was uh, he was working at fox or where he worked before was cnbc which which he turned into kind of a powerhouse he's just a genius at discovering a niche market 
market and sucking all the cash he possibly can out of that niche market. And with CNBC, what he learned is that if you can get your product on all the monitors at Goldman Sachs, your ratings do not matter. You know you can sell Lexuses, you know you can sell fancy vacations, you know you can sell, you know, prime real estate to these people. So you can go out with that pitch. Like, yeah, and the, and the don't content matter. doesn't matter. I mean, one yeah. of the interesting things about the CNBC model, and you can look at it in the Fox model, is again, hiring um, very attractive women as, as talking yeah. heads. And I've always contrasted this actually to ESPN, where you have these incredibly talented uh, sports journalists who are not just hired, who are men and women, and the women are not just hired for their looks. And, you know, at CNBC, obviously, we've got some very talented reporters, but there is an unbelievable amount of obvious visual discrimination. Yeah. Like, there just are no unattractive uh, female anchors on CNBC. And I assume that's a Roger Ailes like. It may be. I mean, the eye candy factor is is uh, sort of pernicious throughout TV news and has been, I think, probably since its you know inception. Ailes, the sexism is explicit and regularized and normalized in a way that it's not anywhere else on Fox. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, CNBC is this really interesting niche market of extremely high-end bankers working in these various gigantic firms throughout New York. Fox is also a niche market, but it's everyone in Alabama and Tennessee. Like, it's a much bigger niche market. And so often Fox is like the number three or number four cable network period in the ratings. It's not just beating CNN. It's beating TNT and USA and, you know, Nickelodeon. So do they have do they have a problem? I mean, I guess a couple things that we've talked about over the over the past years have been just the TV business in general having mm -hmm. an issue as, pe as people cord cut, um, as subscription revenues from cable go down. And I, I want to ask, I guess, twofold. Like, one, does Fox have a problem with that secular move? Maybe threefold. Two, does it have a problem um, as its audience ages and or dies? Yeah. Have they been successful at converting the 45-year-old into the 55-year-old? And, and maybe a last point is... Can Bill Shine do it post-Roger, maybe post-Bill O'Reilly? Like, in other words, can Fox survive some of these, uh, you know, as the chickens have finally come home to roost? Right. Can they can they sort of manage the talent replacement? Well, I think the first question is, is one that has to do, I, I think, generally speaking, Fox is the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the TV industry because the whole, all, all of cable and broadcast has a problem, uh, like a secular problem of aging viewership as millennials realize that they have to pay for the internet, they can't afford to pay for cable, so they're just not going to bother because who watches cable anyway? Also, I mean, you you have you have other problems that have, you know, gone back several years of like clutter. Uh, at one point, Spike TV was working with a 38-minute hour, and the other 22 minutes were just ads and PSAs, which I think is remarkable. So, th I mean, that's also, th that happens throughout cable. So there are lots of unattractive, there are lots of reasons people aren't going to cable. The aging problem is primarily an advertiser problem. Fox's advertiser problems are compounding one on the other as these sexual harassment lawsuits come out because advertisers keep going, oh, we don't want associations with um, Bill O'Reilly and with anything Roger Ailes has touched. And so they, they tend to pull out of specific programs. And they may pull out of the network altogether. Who knows? Uh, the other thing, though, is that just the subscription fees, just the chunk of the cable bill that goes to Fox is massively more than any other network except, I believe, ESPN. ESPN used to get, I think, six or seven dollars per subscriber, which is enormous. The average industry average is a quarter, twenty-five cents if your cable subscription goes so, to them. So if you're getting twenty-five times yeah. the amount of revenue, yeah. I mean that 
that obviously five times within Fox's case. Yeah, that that has to be the place where if I'm a cable executive, I'm attacking on the next uh, you know deal when when I'm renegotiating. Yeah, because I mean you know you can cut the twenty five cent guy down to twenty cents. If I get Fox down a dollar, that's you know twenty of the other networks. Yeah, absolutely. but I mean, people do people do buy cable just to get Fox. Um, people keep Fox on all day. The length of tune on Fox is astonishing. It's like four hours. Um, people just sit there and watch it and watch it and watch it because it's very entertaining. And well, yeah. I mean, is there any way to? Th- this is the Obama point, right? Like, right. if I if I I think he famously said, you know, if I watched Fox News, I wouldn't vote for me, right? Yeah. And they've been very very successful at having this entertaining product that keeps you angry, that is on message, that's yeah. sort of very news content light. And first of all, I don't know whether we should create an organization that actually does the same thing, because I, I don't know that it's really possible. Well, I, think, I, mean, I think that's right. I think you shouldn't. I think that there's no, there's no good use for something that just kind of tries as hard as it can to generate in its viewership this like wave of rage and then just shoot the curl of that wave as long as it possibly can until it crashes on somebody probably uh you know women and minorities like it's it's just it's never there's no positive use for it right ailes and other people of his ilk really do believe that we live under tyranny under obama this is one of the reasons that liberal rhetoric is so defanged before it even gets started is that they spent the last eight years saying everything that we're saying about trump except that the you know, signal differences that it's literally true with Donald Trump. He may actually be a traitor in the, like, you know, dictionary sense of the word, but people were calling Obama a traitor from day two. Right. And that is such a complicated thing to navigate. I remember watching a piece on the times, which had, um, dialogues between children and parents who'd voted for Clinton and Trump in the last mm-hmm. election. And there was a woman from West Virginia, the mother who'd voted for Trump who said, well, you have to understand for the last eight years, we had the Antichrist, yeah. actual quote that she said. So I hear what you're saying, and I know how upset you feel, but imagine how I felt for the yeah. last eight years. Yeah. And it seems odd to say, but you know that Obama wasn't the Antichrist, yeah. because what, <laughs> what do you say to that, right? Well, like, I think the primary difference and the one that is really important to emphasize is these people really do think it's about feelings. They really think that racism is a problem of feelings. It's a problem of hurting people's feelings and calling names. And Right, not to, structural right, oppression. To, right, to suggest to people that racism is you know results in people dying or you know not being able to get the care that they need or not being able to buy an apartment like that that suddenly changes the conversation but people are very people on the right are very invested in talking about racism exclusively in terms of like students at Yale objecting to Halloween parties like that that is that is the only way they think racism is experienced in the 2017 world and that's a huge challenge and one that the rest of the news media has totally failed to address it up to this is going to sound insane but i actually think that um the demise of roger ailes may actually have been a more important sociocultural event in the united states than the election of donald trump like i really think that we have now lost this guy who managed to keep the nazis the christians and the libertarians in the same room together those people hate each other and i think you're seeing that fracture and fall apart with bannon leaving the white house now and i think he's going to go back to his weird like catholic fascist organ and have breitbart trash trump every day when he gets uh when he gets canned i mean that's actually fascinating because if if you did see a way forward for the republican party 
you'd have to think that it actually was in the form of, I'm not obviously a supporter of uh, racist nationalist populism, but it does appear to be a more successful strategy than say, uh, I don't know, making healthcare a lot more expensive for rural white Americans who are 55 sure. to 60. Yeah. Like, that's insane. Like, I don't actually understand how the, well, we got Trump elected on this platform, let's try and rerun Romney is a is a working I, political strategy. I had this but, argument with a wonderful Christian Republican I've, you know, known my entire life just the other day. He said, that, you know, oh, well, I, I don't, he said Trump's not going to get rid of Obamacare. You know, they tried to do that and they failed. And he said, you know, and, you know Republicans, they're not going to do, they're not going to get rid of health care. And I just said, that's I mean, that's the entire platform. That's the only reason Paul Ryan has, you know, wants to be in politics. Right. Literally to, the first thing they tried to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's the, the, everybody except Donald Trump really wants to do that. Like Ted Cruz wants to do it. Paul Ryan, the whole. And, thing, and maybe yeah. the amazing thing is maybe they won't get tax reform done for the same reason. Yeah. Because, you know, revenue neutral tax reform means raising taxes on the middle class, yeah. which Americans don't want to believe, but that's how it works. <laughs> uh, and. If you Americans don't define the middle class correctly either. That's true, but yeah. let's let's define it in the fake democratic way of like yeah, yeah. everyone between two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and and nothing, <laughs> and that's still middle class. Yeah. And no, it would still mean raising taxes on those people if you did revenue neutral. Yeah. If you do it non-revenue neutral, it's just a big giveaway to wealthy people. I mean, maybe they can do it again, but it'll expire. It'll sunset in ten years. Well, and this is why you can always make Republican. This is why you can always galvanize the base during the election, and why you always get such disappointment after the election is that you can say, I. Well, we have we have incredible purity of message with this one candidate, with Donald Trump, who believes everything. <laughs> he actually believes everything. So you can pick the six things you believe, and you can see how they line up, and you can say, well, finally, we have a guy who believes six things. And when he gets into office he can just cop out and say, oh, well, the vision was corrupted by these other people you have to keep company with or else the godless homosexual Democrats will win. I mean, this is actually why I think he's so dangerous in 2020, because I could easily see actually us having very strong uh, congressional election electoral results and losing the presidency. Uh, because I think Trump is, first of all, obviously a very good campaigner. He's yeah. proven he's very good at that. And I do think there's a large part of his base that views him as the sort of... Um, you know, right, universal solvent for, yeah. for political messages. Well, I mean, as long as this, the Democrats just give the entire South up for lost, it's just going to keep happening again and again and again. If, if, you're, if you're not willing to get a single seat in Alabama, if you're not willing to, like, find the one place in Tennessee where you might be able to get a congressman, who cares about you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think I think a, a large part of that is an inability to talk about the services that, that people yeah. provide, an inability to get through, and many times incredibly gerrymandered and corrupt mm-hmm. state governments. Um, I think we want to talk about that in the second part of the show, maybe for an interlude. Uh, you know, this week, everyone's favorite Tory racist, Andrew Sullivan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shot himself in the face again. Seb, you know, what's your what's your take? Well, so I, I've worked at an English newspaper for a long time. And I can do the accent fairly well. So here's how I believe Andrew Sullivan wants this uh, to read. Um Yet today, Asian Americans are among the most prosperous, well-educated, and successful ethnic groups in America. What gives? It couldn't possibly be that they maintained solid two-parent family structures, had social networks that looked after one another, placed enormous emphasis on education and hard work, and thereby turned false negative stereotypes into true positive ones, could it? It couldn't be that all whites are not racist, or that the American dream still lives. 
And so I think that's what I, I think that's what he wants you to read. And yet when I read it, it reads more like it today. Asian Americans are among most prosperous, well-educated, and successful ethnic groups in America. What gives? It couldn't possibly be that they maintained solid two-parent family structures, had social networks that looked after one another, placed enormous emphasis on education and hard work, and thereby turned false negative stereotypes into true positive ones, could it? It couldn't be that all whites are not racists and that the American dream still lives. And so that, I think, is all I want to say about Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> Uh, well, and, and thanks for, for that. I, I think that's a, a perfect illustration of how you're uh, grounding in both uh, British newspaper life uh, and, the deep, and, deep and the deep, deep south helps us out. <laughs> so, you know, you had just mentioned it's something we've talked a lot about actually offline over the past couple of years um, about Democrats not being able to make inroads in areas like the south. And obviously part of that is just not showing up. And that's a clear Absolutely. issue. You need to run candidates. You need to actually fund them. I mean, Tom Perez, you said you run a 50-state strategy, yeah. didn't give 20000 bucks to the guy in Kansas. Like, come yeah. on. But the second, I think, is oftentimes a real inability for government to move beyond its sort of Reagan-esque caricature as provider of nothing. Right. Because industry, uh, sometimes local industry, but often multinational corporations, really uh, collude with local state legislators to remove actually sort of like good public-private partnerships or good public uh, resourcing that the government would do and instead uh, give sort of very favorable contract deals to to these firms and, and to uh, actually restrict the level of service that a lot of people have. And a great example of this is sort of in rural broadband. And, and Sam, this is an area that you've covered for years. Yeah. And there was recently a development in Tennessee, which I think speaks exactly to this. So. Basically, if you run a giant telco, um, AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, Comcast, you can't afford to take your product to a place where the population density is below X, right? Like you have to lay pipe that makes it to every house. So once you get into towns of 600, 700 people, like the town where I grew up, uh, it's no longer profitable to take your product out there. It's, it's like a classic yeah. network problem. Yeah, like a absolutely. railroad infrastructure, airport yeah. infrastructure. Right? Well, it, railroad and airport infrastructure though, were um, uh, sort of publicly funded in a way that these private corporations are not, so the threshold is much, much uh, lower. So one of the ways that public industry, which I think is great, has gotten around this in Chattanooga specifically, which is a like a diffuse town, but a population center still in Tennessee, is that they have their own publicly funded, publicly run cable company called the EPB. And the EPB um, was built a few years ago and has, I believe... There are a couple of others that are doing a similar thing, but I believe it has, if not the fastest, among the fastest internet in the nation. It has like one, everybody has a one gigabit per second line that's very cheap. So they've said, I think very rightly, that the uh, best thing for them to do would be to uh, have this kind of absurd restriction on um, geography for their build-out lifted so that they can go into these little towns around Chattanooga, presumably, you know, I mean, Knoxville's a little far, far, but I mean, there are others, there are other kind of places like outside the city limits where people would love to have broadband. And by stock market standards, as I say, this is a really inefficient business. By 
government-funded operation standards, this is a fabulously efficient business. Like this is this can be counted on to re- return investment like fairly quickly, like in a matter of decades, rather than you know a hundred years in the future, maybe. Like this is so, this is a product everybody needs. This is one of the reasons that I think it was really rhetorically wise as well as sort of legally crafty of the the FCC under Tom Wheeler to classify broadband as a utility because that's what it is. So um, unfortunately, even though there's huge, there's enough grassroots support for this for an entire city to be like, yes, we want this. We're doing it. We're going to fund it with a loan. We're going to pay the loan back. Uh, we're going to make a big profit generator for our city. You get sort of crony capitalism just a notch or two above that. So by the time it gets to the Tennessee State House, all of those people, almost to a man, are taking campaign donations from AT&T and refuse to lift these restrictions that are sort of artificial in the first place uh, because the, it might allow the public to compete with a corporation that exists only to sort of suck them dry. And so that's amazing because <clears throat> these these small towns will now actually have slower service yeah. from a private competitor that costs more. Absolutely. Um, and yet, you know, and well, government's inefficient right. is the response. Well, right, and and I think that's really one of the hard things for Democrats to combat because you know obviously the the to the extent that there's gerrymandering or yeah. even just the fact that you have more rural areas and so you sort of have a, a Republican domination of the Tennessee state legislature, but it, it is really difficult I think to make an argument and say well look the you know it is a utility. It's like these are the roads of, of the 21st yeah. century is, is providing broadband, but we're actually prohibited from doing so by um, these corrupt politicians, yeah. and they don't seem to suffer a penalty. No, I, like, and, no and they I, never do. They never do. And I think that's one of the problems. I mean, you know, we, we've talked before on the pod, Jerry and I have, about um, two books, one, one by Suzanne Metwer called The Submerged State. And I think there's a real problem of when Democrats have provided benefits in the sort of post-Roosevelt era of making them far less obvious that it's a government service. Yeah. And that, that creates a lot of ease of this sort of Reagan-esque argument of government doesn't do anything. But I think one of the other real issues with it is you have an active campaign by Republicans not just to shrink government, but to make government worse. Yeah. And to and to hand things over to private corporations in, in classic situations, again, like utilities, where, where it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of economic theory on this. Utilities should not be privately run. I don't, again, this is sort of a stopping point for me because I, I don't know where that goes, actually, uh, because of the sort of dominance of, of, of these state legislators and, and the complete lack of consequences for, for their basically graft. Well, I think there's a couple of, uh, of, of things to unpack here. And, and the first is that there's way too much focus on the letter of the law in the debate because um, AT&T and the other uh, companies in the region say, oh, well, this is a, um, these companies aren't allowed to expand beyond their borders for good reason. But it, it's, it's also true that without legislation and just with naked collusion, AT&T, Comcast, and all the other broadband providers, you know, uh, Spectrum, have uh, carved up the country into their own sort of private areas where there's no competition. So, I mean, the, the notion that government would compete and that that would be unfair seems to make sense on the surface, but what A&T actually believes is that any competition is unfair. Right. Is that they, should not, they should not have to compete with any of their peers either. They should just be allowed to charge people as much as they possibly can until those people go broke and starve. Right. So you have oligopoly pricing because right. you have a private utility. Yeah. And again, in the same way that we don't let... It doesn't make sense to build two water pipes to every yeah. place in your city. So you could, it's true, have a private company build all the water pipes in right. your city. But if you did, you would want to make sure that was especially well-regulated. Because again, there's 
there's just no incentive for someone to come in and rebuild that network. And this is true for so many different things, transportation networks. It's Absolutely. certainly true for broadband. And we have um, many of these regulatory apparatuses in the country were built out of the progressive era in the late 19th century, but also responding to real-world economics that collided with economic theory. Yeah. In, in in a lot of cases, when you have natural oligopolies arise, because you have highly capital-intensive industries that it makes no sense for someone to re-replicate. Well, and I think among in those oligopolies, you have people who really want to hire any politician to represent them who believes in the invisible hand of the free market, right? Like, you, ha- you have these... Any company, any right. company that has generated a market that it controls, really wants like an Adam Smith cultist to run the state. House. Well, and that's what's so frustrating. You know, I, I mean, I, I like to think I know a, a little bit about economics, and it's as if everyone's economics knowledge stops at day one of Micro, yeah. who's a Republican politician, and they've never thought about more complicated markets. I mean, there's literally over a hundred years of economic theory yeah. about why trusts exist, why oligopolies come into power, why network effects are really important, yeah. and the hand for regulation in that. And I think also what's what's very strange about this to me is that this idea that these markets just arise naturally, like markets grow on trees, <laughs> as opposed to being very much structured and very path-dependent by the, by the people around them who operate them. And so what happened in the 19th century? So in the, in the 19th century, when you had railroad robber barons who'd created these rail networks yeah. that were constantly sort of squeezing people at the junction points, especially, you had popular uprisings. You basically said, you know, this, uh, the rail passage should, should apply to the people. These trusts, which are uh, driving up uh, prices, should be broken up, et cetera, et cetera. I don't feel the same sense of popular anger today. I, I do wonder maybe if Democrats could channel that against cable companies. I do but. think that it's there, actually. I think um, the, the stuff that we've done, I actually, one of the nice things about working at it, like actually in the office at a newspaper is that you get to see which of your stories do high traffic and anything where you're like, Comcast sucks. People love it. <laughs> People put it on Reddit. They, you know, it's 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 very. The, the thing I think is that the tools of revolution are very different when you're rebelling against Comcast than they are when you're rebelling against the railroad. And I think one of those tools is in fact um, local network building. Uh, there are there are a lot of really interesting kind of partitioned off tools like um, Keybase and Solid that are allowing people to regain control of their information. I was talking to Tim Berners Lee, who invented the World Wide Web, uh, a couple of weeks back, and he he said. It one of the reasons that Facebook annoys him is that he says it's like AOL never went away, <laughs> which I'd never thought of before. But of course, it's the exact same. Um, it's the because it's, not, it's the channel by which everyone absolutely. Interacts with the it's not yeah. the Internet of Things. It's the CompuServe of things. One thing you said that I wanted to get back to a little bit here is that um, the uh, the sort of Democratic pitch is, is a frustrating and frustrated one. But I do think Democrats come out of urban areas where the necessary amenities are just vastly different. Right. So if, if your level of service provision is very high, yeah. you're not necessarily going to run a campaign basically being like, actually, we need sewer lines. Because actually, right yeah. in a lot of the South, there are, are counties which are not Trash up. pickup. Like, right. there's all kinds of stuff that you could run a campaign on that might even overcome your opponent being like you're a baby killing sodomite which and, is uh, you know I do wonder I, Republican line. I do wonder actually if the trust busting argument might like you talk about yes we should have these these alternate networks and I agree I mean alternate networks are certainly a way to operate but you know one of the ways that we dealt with the the rail was was actually to nationalize parts of the, yeah. the rail system but also to 
functionally break up the rail system yeah. and to, to create more natural competition. And I wonder if you were to go back in and unfortunately the the antitrust power, that's been one of the things that has was such a tool of progressive government and got abandoned. I mean, we we've attacked Matt Stoller a lot on the show. Um, mostly, I think, for underplaying white supremacy, which is like a real thing and bad and he shouldn't do. But I do think an, an undercurrent of what he said, and maybe we'll talk more about in our next episode on industrial policy, is sort of Democrats really dropped the ball on understanding antitrust as a, a tool to fight against corporate power and consolidation. And this is something that has just astonished me over 10 years of covering businesses. Every time an airline merges, Fuck no, you can't merge with your second largest competitor. Of course not. Oh, we'll go bankrupt. Okay. Well, right. Or I guess I I would say, you know, if you're going to have the level of airline consolidation that you do, you need a more active level of subsidy to make sure they fly to certain regional places. Yeah. Like, it's like, they're just not even trade-offs, But you also need need regulation to say you can can only make your passengers X miserable, right? Like, the only reason they pay people to get off airplanes in the first place is that it's mandated. It's actually in the, like... And it's it's in the I believe the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, although maybe the FTC's rules for bumping people from flights. Right. Otherwise, they would just take you off. Yeah. Like everyone yeah. would be clubbed. And they don't offer you a dollar because when they take you off involuntarily, they have to give you four hundred percent of your ticket price. So there there's incentive for them to offer you progressively more up to that level. Um, but again, that's the only reason they do it. It's not out of the goodness of their hearts. They give you peanuts out of the goodness of their hearts, and I haven't had a bag of peanuts in several years. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I I think in general the the abandoning of a lot of the regulatory tools in part was necessary because you you arguably in the 1970s you did have overregulation of certain industries right but i think that the way in which that went from slightly too much regulation that prevented disruption and prevented prices from dropping in certain areas to absolutely no regulation at all including consolidation past sort of any metric like mm-hmm. there you know country the size of the US only having four airlines you think yeah. well a lot of nations only have four airlines but you think about yeah. Europe Ireland yeah right yeah like <laughs> um, Europe has uh, for similar sort of passenger density something like 15 times the yeah. number of airlines many of whom are private some of whom are national carriers yeah. so that that's one aspect I think the the other place where the sort of failure of the regulatory state has really been let down, and, and again, I sort of hope to cover this in, in other points, is when you have mergers, you don't just lose pricing power as consumers, you actually also lose a lot of jobs in regional mm-hmm. cities. Yeah. So you may have had um, a regional hub that was uh, the home of the you know fourth largest brewer in America. And when that merger happens, guess what? All those jobs now are in you know one place, and it's not it's not wherever that fourth largest yeah. brewer was. But I also want to push back a little bit on overregulation, because I think it's true that it is possible to overregulate, but I think very rarely do, does any has anyone ever overregulated the largest players in an industry, right? Like overregulation often adversely affects only the mid-sized to small players. And yeah. that, that is why people who are like, I'm a small business owner and I fucking hate the Democrats. Like, because the Democrats are the world champions of being like, yeah, we're going to make sure everybody who makes under $100,000 a year has to sell peanuts that are roasted in this specific right has a regulatory bird. yeah but if you if you you know the GIF company can sell whatever they want no I think that's fair I mean if you look actually at one of the interesting things about Carter's deregulation so he deregulated trucking the airline industry a lot of the actually Reagan-esque neoliberalism 
comes out of Carter's deregulation. One of the things was beer, and it allowed microbrews to exist, because basically the regulations in the late 70s did not allow small beer companies to exist. So there is, I, I think that's a fair note, like one of the things to really look at in industrial policy is maybe abandoning a certain type of regulatory policy, especially on small business, was was a good idea yeah. and allowed a lot of market innovation. But it certainly didn't need to go along with completely abandoning antitrust. Well, and I, but it's so often this is just a function of people who work for the primary regulator in an industry having recently worked for the largest player in that industry. Right. Like that just happens. All that happens at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It happens at the American Egg Board. It happens anywhere up or down the food chain. You can find a regulator and a business. And I mean, I guess it's savvy on the part of those larger industries, but it, it, I, I don't understand why it's not illegal. Right. Well, Obama yeah. actually tried, but unfortunately, yeah. uh, during the Obama administration, so many people, because they realized they had to write Obamacare and, and keep the insurance industry on board. Yeah. So they basically broke their own lobbying rules or modified their own lobbying rules to have the revolving door with the health, health insurance industry. Right. And now, you know, the Times just ran a front page story about all these people from the oil and gas industry coming into Trump. And yes, that is worse. But try telling that to an average voter, because yeah. this is one of those cases where they actually could point to Obama and be like, well, why did you hire the guy who was like the VP at Cigna yeah. to be, you know, to to help with ACA rollout? It's yeah, like, but the funny thing is, I don't think the average Republican voter knows that or thinks that it's bad, because that's not something the that's <laughs> not that's not something the conservative press would ever push as a problem. Like they, they would think that's great. They would say, oh, the guy at Cigna at least knows what's going on. Like right. that, that's that that would always be the line. Right. Because the free market is actually just the right of the largest company yes. to consolidate all of its competitors yes, in the, charge. the company that was there first and got the first billion dollars, it's that the, they are the regulator. That is the invisible hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, on, on that happy note, um, <laughs> I, I think this is actually a really good intro into, into the next episode that we'll do, um, hopefully with some folks who are, are real experts on industrial policy. Because, I, again, I think that one of the, the actual ways that Democrats can make a strong distinction from Republicans moving forward is not just trying to talk about service provision, but trying to talk fi- talk about fighting particular aspects of corporate power. And I think even more than sort of a Sanders-esque, you know, push for uh, basic provision of services like single-payer health care and, and a higher tax base, I think some of the things that may be really resonant, although as Sam notes, not necessarily in urban areas where these yeah. things exist, but just are, hey, you will have broadband. You will not be at the mercy of a single provider. Your sewer line will be hooked up. Yeah. Like, these are very powerful arguments if you, you know, have a septic tank. Well, and the problem, and I think, in these places is less that people don't want that and more that they just don't believe it could ever happen. So right. You, you is, actually have to demonstrate to them that yeah, we will come to your house. We will hook up your sewer line. You won't have to have a septic tank anymore. Right. Like, the, the, this is actually the problem that Arlie Hotchild brings up in her study of uh, white supremacists in Louisiana. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a tender, loving book, but but part of it really is they are so beaten down yeah. by the pollution and they believe that the the only jobs that could possibly come are from those companies that are literally well, giving them cancer. And when you see the incredible graft in these places, it's hard to disagree with them. When you see Pat McCrory just give Duke Energy a pass for dumping coal ash into the Dan River, you do despair. You do kind of go, well, I guess political solutions don't work in North Carolina. And it has least- to come from some sort of a puckish billionaire who grows a conscience one morning like Ebenezer Scrooge. And unfortunately, those people don't exist. Well, on that sorry, <laughs> I'm just going to make it downerier and downerier until we end. To yeah. poisoning from coal ash. Well, uh, this has been this is fine. Um, I really want to thank our our guest Sam Thielman for coming in. Thank you for having uh, me and appreciate his insights. Um, and as always, our our talented sound engineer Greg Young. And uh, you know, we hope to rejoin you uh, with Jerry Vinokurov uh, in a couple weeks. Thanks all. Thanks guys. 